Have you heard you can listen to your favorite news podcasts ad-free? Good news. With Amazon Music, you have access to the largest catalog of ad-free top podcasts included with your Prime membership. To start listening, download the Amazon Music app for free or go to amazon.com slash ad-free news podcasts. That's amazon.com slash ad-free news podcasts to catch up on the latest episodes without the ads. VR training platforms like the one developed by Fundamental VR and Orbis International are helping surgeons train over and over before operating on real patients. As you practice each skill, the muscle memory starts to develop. Learn more at meta.com slash metaverse impact. This is the John Fugelsang Podcast. Good evening on this day that inmate number P01135809, also known as Donald Trump, surrendered in Fulton County Jail. This happened just about an hour ago. The mugshot was just released. Now, of course, he turned it into a circus, made it into a big deal, had the motorcade, cable news was covering it nonstop. I have to tell you, the MSNBC Chiron for part of the day was Trump raises specter of violence ahead of surrender. And I think that's what he's trying to convey in his mugshot. And check it out. It's online. But he looks absurd. He looks ridiculous. He looks like he's trying to be menacing. He had to surrender today, and he did. Because he knew if he didn't, he was going to be taken into custody. So after he was arraigned and fingerprinted and had the mugshot taken, he spoke in front of the plane before he took off his private plane because, you know, like every other defendant, he was just able to fly in, go to the courthouse under, you know, a motorcade and then get his picture taken and go. Right. And just talk about a different system of justice for the rich and entitled in this country. Donald Trump, inmate number P01135809 is the classic example of it. And what does he say? What does he say in front of this jail that we've heard so many horror stories about? He says what has taken place here is a travesty of justice. No, it's not. It is justice. It is justice, finally, for someone who tried to steal the election. When he says, we did nothing wrong, I did nothing wrong, he's lying because he's a liar, and he has been. And also, I just want to point out, despite his big efforts to build a crowd, I didn't see any crowd. I watched it. You know, he had a bunch of his extremists tweeting, we're going to have a crowd there. Nothing. You know where he did have a crowd? As he was driving through, to get to the jail, um, the Washington Post reported that as his motorcade approached the jail, it passed through a predominantly black neighborhood where people gathered on the sidewalks and front stoops to watch. Many recorded on their phones, while others shouted profanities or made an obscene gesture. <laughs> I, I would have been in that shouting profanities and making obscene gesture crowd because you know what? I used to do that every day when Mike Pence motorcade drove down Connecticut Avenue. I did it any time I saw it. And it doesn't, it's not like you plan it. It kind of happens spontaneously when you see these creeps. Now, also his defense team is busy at work. And I don't mean his lawyers. He hired a new lawyer today. And I don't know why anyone would be his lawyer because you don't know if you're going to get paid. I mean the Republicans on the House Judiciary Committee, who are very much part of his team. Uh, CNN reporting today that, you know, they are going to uh, open an investigation into Fulton County District Attorney Fonnie Willis. This is Jim Jordan, of course. Jim Jordan, the crime enabler out in, at Ohio State, um, is a crime enabler for Donald Trump. They wanted, they're going to send her a letter. They sent her a letter today asking whether she communicated or coordinated with the Justice Department. It, you know, it just shows Republicans on Capitol Hill, their job is supposed to be to represent their constituents. But really, they could give a fuck about their constituents. Pardon my language, but it's true. They care about one person. Their main job is protecting their one true leader, Donald Trump. I want to get on the phones because I imagine some of you have some thoughts and we have some guests later in the show. So I want to get on the phones early. Let's talk to Mitch in Kent State. Mitch, what are you thinking right now? 
Hey, Joe. Thank you. Uh, yeah, I, I, well, I didn't um, watch the debate live last night. First of all, if I can go back to that, I taped it, sure. and then I just kind of skipped through it, uh, you know, just uh, trying to pick out the highlights. Uh, but, um, you know, uh, Vivek Ramaswamy, I mean, uh, I think he's I think he's positioning for for uh, VP. I really do. I think that uh, uh, he's uh, you know uh, Trump Jr. in my mind. I don't know he uh, uh, just a uh, very uh, uh, I don't know. He's a head scratcher for sure. I uh, uh, for, first of all, you can tell he's a complete rookie and, and uh, uh, the same way you know Trump got into politics. You know, just because he had money, he bought himself in. Uh, so you know that's the whole uh, you know basis of the, of his run. I think I don't know what uh, his background as far as uh, history and uh, you know in, in American history, whatever he uh, I don't know. It, it just I think uh, he's had nothing doesn't have the knowledge for it. I don't know what these people are telling him, but uh, I just uh, he, he like he, a, he talks loud, he talks fast. Okay, that's a specialty. He talks loud and talks fast. And he loves to interrupt. I know that's another thing, too. Oh, and yeah. uh, I guess, uh, you know, the, the, the thing between him and, the, and Nikki Haley was interesting. I think, uh, of course, she showed, uh, she kind of, I guess, more, more or less the adult in the room, I guess, when she was uh, uh, bantering with him. So as far as foreign policy and things like that, you know, she uh, kind of put him in his place there. But he still, you know, he still has that uh, arrogance about him that, uh, uh, that, you know, sort of a Trumpism about him. So, uh, as far as, uh, I thought as that's, that's uh, kind of what I thought, you know, and it's based yeah. on what's it based on? He, he, he had a company that basically got money from investors and then they all lost their money from what I'm reading about the guy. But the one thing about him is, he, you know, what he felt like to me is just a big huckster, like a Trump, like yeah. just talk, 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 laugh, laugh, yeah. laugh. Um, and then I, I did think it was pretty funny when Chris Christie called him out for using an Obama line. Um, yeah. And look, I mean, you can be many things on a Republican stage, but when you're quoting Barack Obama, oh boy, that's a rough one. <laughs> that's a rough one for them. Yeah, yeah. Uh, in the raise of hands thing here at the end, too, I mean, uh, I don't know what Chris Christie was thinking, you know, of, you know the, being the uh, supposedly anti-Trumper, uh, who uh, I mean, actually, actually, Asa Hutchinson was the only one that didn't raise his hand in that whole thing. Yeah. Uh, I, I don't know what Chris was doing. He kind of like half-heartedly put the hand up, but uh, I don't know what if that was just an impulse or because uh, of the crowd or what. But uh, that was a, kind of an odd moment, also. I don't yeah. know. It's you know, it, you know, we still got ways to go, I guess. But uh, I don't know. And DeSantis is almost a non-factor. You know- I mean, he might have uh, yeah. he might have won the Florida he might have won the Florida crowd, but that's probably about it. Uh, and he just can't he he can't he can't pick and choose he can't he can't answer he can't answer a yes or a true no yes or no question. He just hem haws and uh, you know and goes goes sideline to sideline and, tr- and tries to uh, evade the question directly and comes up with some other uh, alternative answer. I, he just. Uh, I they think he's going to fade. Uh, I think he'll eventually fade anyway. I really do. I think he uh, he owns Florida, and that's about it. Uh, yeah, I, I agree, and I I think I think um, I think all all good points. And you know, it just felt like so JV. And the bottom line is, they're all forty points behind, at least forty points behind Trump. Their right. one true leader stole the news again today. I mean, what was in, one thing that was interesting to me, Mitch, about last night and even today, there was not a lot of coverage of Trump's conversation with Tucker. You know, I thought there'd be more of that. There really wasn't that much discussion about it. It was a weird conversation. Uh, Tucker's creepy anyways, and was asking a lot of questions about Jeffrey Epstein and just a weird kind of interview, but that didn't get a lot of attention. Except for, to me, the one thing that was, you know, Trump talking about January 6th and how it really wasn't reported right. It was people in the crowd said it was the most beautiful day they ever experienced. You know, a lot of people in that crowd are in prison right now because of Donald Trump. So I don't know if they think it was the most beautiful day and that there was love and unity. But, hey, he does. And that's what matters. Mitch, I got to jump because we're going to have a guest in a few minutes. But I'm glad I get to talk to you tonight. I uh, appreciate your perspective on the debate. And, uh, sure. and, and uh, we'll, hopefully we'll talk again soon. Oh, yeah. uh, let's Thank take you. a break have here a on Tell Me Everything. We'll be back in just a few minutes.
Ophthalmologist Dr. Strauss has seen firsthand how the Metaverse is helping surgeons practice the procedures to treat cataracts. Cataracts are the primary cause of avoidable blindness. He works with a virtual reality training platform developed by Fundamental VR and Orbis International to help surgeons develop the muscle memory they need. The result? More confident, capable surgeons. And even more importantly, patients who can see. Explore more stories like Dr. Strauss's at meta.com slash metaverseimpact. As you write your life story, you're far from finished. Are you looking to close the book on your job? Maybe turn a page in your career. Be Continued at the Georgetown University School of Continuing Studies. Our professional master's degrees and certificates are designed to meet you where you are and take you where you want to go. At Georgetown SCS, the learning never stops, and neither do you. Write your next chapter. Be Continued at scs.georgetown.com. .edu slash podcast. Hey everybody, it's Michael Steele, host of the Michael Steele Podcast. Each week, I discuss key political and cultural issues joined by America's leading activists, experts, and academics for conversations that transcend political boundaries. And that's the point. I want you to join me as we work through real solutions, have honest conversations, just keeping it real, and having a little fun on the side. So listen to the Michael Steele Podcast on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, Spreaker, or wherever you get your podcasts on, because you know I love it when you do. Hello, and welcome back to Tell Me Everything. I'm Joe Sudbay, guest hosting for John this week, and what a week to guest host. And what happened in Atlanta today, and what's been happening with all of the defendants in the case brought by Fulton County DA has really shown a lot of people an aspect of the criminal justice system. And one aspect it has shown is how basically people with a lot of money are treated differently. And that's why I'm really glad to be talking to our next guest about these issues. Alex Burness is a staff writer at Bolt Magazine, one of my favorite publications. He covers local politics. He focuses on voting rights and the criminal legal system and how intertwined they are. Alex, welcome to Tell Me Everything. Thank you so much for having me on. It's good to be here. Well, I'm really glad you could be. And I think it's actually kind of prophetic that you're here on this night when, you know, there's so much discussion about the criminal justice system. And you have been you write about it. You and your colleagues at Bolts, I think, do more to do do so much work to help us understand what's happening with elections, what's happening with voting rights and what's happening with the criminal justice system. And, and, And you've written a couple of pieces recently that I really kind of want to dig into. And one of and they're both about states that have elections this year, Kentucky and Virginia. Let's start with Kentucky and an article you wrote just a couple of weeks ago. Kentucky's governor race could unwind voting rights restoration. And man, this is a big deal. Talk about it for us. Explain what's going on there. And, and then we can dig in a little bit. Sure. Um, Kentucky has a governor's race. Uh, coming up in November. It's one of the few states with governor's races this year. And there's a ton on the line for felony disenfranchisement, among dozens of other topics we could talk about. But to focus on that one, uh, the status quo in Kentucky, I think, would shock a lot of people. Um, about 5% of Kentucky's voting age population or more than 150,000 people um, are disenfranchised and will not be able to vote in November. Um, that is twice approximately the national disenfranchisement rate. And if you're talking about black Kentuckians, um, that's 12%. So 12% of black Kentuckians, 5% of Kentucky's voting age population overall can't vote. Pretty shocking numbers. I mean, those are huge slices of the pie. Um, and the absence uh, of those folks in the electorate certainly skews things in any number of directions. Uh, but believe it or not, you know, this is actually a enormous uh, uh, progress from where Kentucky had been uh, just as recently as a few years ago, just as recently as before Andy Bashir, the Democratic governor, took over. So uh, Bashir issued an order when he uh, came into office shortly after coming into office um, 
re-enfranchising those who had completed their sentences, including probation or parole, uh, and who were convicted of, quote-unquote, nonviolent offenses, uh, w- what the state deems to be nonviolent. Uh, that was a like totally historic step for Kentucky, uh, and he stands for re-election now against the Republican Attorney General, Daniel Cameron, who, if he wins, could do whatever he wants on this topic, because Kentucky, like the other state we're going to talk about, Virginia, and only one other in the country, Iowa, um, confers upon its governor the absolute power to decide who among the pool of people who have lost their voting rights because they are convicted of a felony uh, gets to get them back and when and why. And so there's real fear that Daniel Cameron, if he wins, could take Kentucky backwards to a place where if you've been convicted of a felony, you are disenfranchised for life. Uh, so the stakes are tremendously high. And to put it, I think, as simply as I can, you know, Kentucky is not good on this front. Uh, tons of people are disenfranchised, as I mentioned earlier. Andy Bashir is far from a uh, trailblazer in, in this space. Uh, in fact, his policy puts him in company uh, with some of the most severe restrictions anywhere in the country. But it used to be more severe and it could go back to being more severe very soon. It's one of these things, Alex, how many states, if you know off the top of your head, um, disenfranchise voters for life if they have a conviction like this? Is it it's not every state? No, it? it's 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 certainly not every state. Um, in fact, there's really only one state uh, at the moment where any voter, sorry, any person who has committed a felony is presumed to be disenfranchised for life. And that is Virginia. And that is because of Glenn Youngkin's mm. new policy, which perhaps we'll get to in a second. Um, then yeah. on the way other end of the spectrum, there's just a small handful of states, two of them, plus D.C. and Puerto Rico, where you never lose your voting rights, uh, even if you're in prison. And in between Virginia on one extreme and those others that I mentioned on the other, uh, you have a whole patchwork of different policies where uh, you know, in some places, if you've completed your sentence, uh, you get to vote. Uh, if you've completed your incarceration, but not your full sentence, you get it back. In other cases, if, you know, in Iowa, for example, they restore your rights when you complete your sentence, except if you were convicted of homicide. So Kentucky is there in that middle ground uh, where you're not presu- you're, you're not presumed to be disenfranchised for life, no matter what, if you have a felony conviction. Uh, but it's still awfully harsh, and I would say much closer to the Kentucky end of the spectrum than the Maine and, and Vermont one on the other side. Yeah. Okay. So I'm a Mainer, originally a Mainer. And I so I, I was going to throw in that Maine, in Maine, you never lose your right to vote. And actually, in Maine, even if you're incarcerated, you can vote. And that's what I grew up thinking was the norm. I went to law school here, and who's really basically when I got to law school, I was like, holy shit, the rest of this country is a mess on this issue. And 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 one of the worst, and um, you've mentioned it a couple of times, let's head over to Virginia. Virginia has elections this year, not for governor, but for the House of Delegates, all 100 seats are up, all 40 seats in the state Senate. But Glenn Youngkin won in 2021, supposed to be this moderate the media portrayed him as a moderate kind of businessman, which he's been anything but. He's just a typical extreme Republican, in my opinion. Um, but he he's really pulled some dick moves. Well, I call them dick moves. Tell us about what's been happening in Virginia. I didn't know you could swear on Sirius. Oh, yeah, you can swear on Sirius. Yeah, yeah. Dick move is like, that's an easy one, Alex. Yeah. All right. You can, you can swear here. <laughs> so um, I'll talk about Youngkin, let me say one thing in in response to something you said about growing up and what you thought was normal. I mean, I I actually think a lot of people would be shocked if they understood how incredibly restrictive the status quo is and how incredibly unusual it is that a state like Maine uh, would treat voting rights as rights as opposed to privileges that can be revoked. Um, you know, for all kinds of reasons. And the uh, degree to which this country has normalized felony disenfranchisement is really, really staggering. Um, A colleague of mine, uh, just after my Kentucky piece came out, wrote about the same topic in Tennessee. 21% of uh, black adults in the state of Tennessee can't vote. I mean, one in five. It's unbelievable. And I just think it's something that is really not well understood by a lot of people. Um, 
of course, hopefully that that's where Bolts comes in. Um, anyway, about Glenn Youngkin, uh, his situation is it, it, it's really interesting because Virginia, I, I mentioned that there's this wide, wide spectrum of how states handle um, felony disenfranchisement. And Virginia had been on a decade long march. Uh, toward the main side of things. Uh, in 2013, Republican Governor Bob McDonnell um, took a first step announcing that he'd restore voting rights uh, for people convicted of nonviolent offenses after they completed their sentences. And then Terry McAuliffe, a Democrat, comes in and he expands the practice uh, and restores voting rights for anybody once they complete their sentence, including probation and parole. And then Ralph Northam comes in, the Democrat, and he maintains McAuliffe's approach and then expands on it by saying, uh, you don't have to complete your full sentence. You just have to complete your term of incarceration. So just before Glenn Youngkin comes into office, uh, you have a situation where uh, if you have exited a state prison, um, no matter what else is going on in your life, you can vote. And the state should automatically and was, or at least was supposed to be and usually was, restoring people's rights as soon as they got out of prison. I mentioned a few minutes ago that Virginia is one of three states that gives its governor total power uh, to decide uh, what the felony disenfranchisement or reenfranchisement scheme in the state should be, along with Kentucky and Iowa. So Youngkin comes in and uh advocates and folks affected by this aren't really sure where he's at on it it hadn't been entirely clear during the campaign of course this is a topic that is really very rarely covered uh by media and so mm -hmm. we have a situation where a new governor comes in and everyone's like you know everyone who cares about this topic is just a little bit nervous like where where's he at on this and then over a period of months uh advocates and folks affected by this in virginia start to notice that um, applications for reenfranchisement is just taking much longer to hear back. People are sitting in limbo for uh, longer. Um, nonprofit organizations that work in reentry that uh, you know previously had had direct lines to the administration uh, are suddenly struggling to get answers to basic questions like, "Hey, such and such person uh, applied. Where do they stand? Or how do I look up, you know, where such and such person is, um, you know, in, in the process?" So. Um, under some pressure from uh, state legislators and from advocates, Youngkin, um, it finally comes out earlier this year in the spring um, that Youngkin has in basically entirely wiped out all that stuff that had been happening in the previous 10 years where Virginia governors, and I'll remind, uh, you know, that the governors are talking about those previous ones were both Republicans and Democrats. Um, mm -hmm they had had a system of eventually by the time we got to Northam automatically restoring people's rights in a standardized way. Youngkin took it back to pre 2013, pre Bob McDonnell to say, Nope. Uh, I now, because I can do this cause I'm the governor of Virginia. I'm paraphrasing. Of course he didn't say this, but uh, I get to decide who gets to vote and it's that simple. And so no longer do we have a sense of, whether you have a good chance of getting your rights restored, uh, depending on certain circumstances, is it the nature of your your the offense you were convicted of? Does it have anything to do with how close you are with the governor? What, what what connections you may have if you have good legal representation? It's just a totally cloudy process. And so uh, the, a, a couple big results of this. Uh, one is reenfranchisement has just been dramatically slowed. I have met tons and tons of people in Virginia in a few months of reporting on this who under Northam, under McAuliffe would have been restored, who haven't been, and they're waiting in limbo and they can't get an answer. And often they just have no idea where they stand and, and no sense of when they might get off the list. Um, that's one thing. The other thing that I, I think is sort of underrated is it's just sown mass, massive confusion where People uh, don't really know anymore. Uh, at, at what point am I going to be made whole again? At, at what point uh, will I be regarded as a regular citizen of this state? What do I have to do to do that? Um, and it's been demoralizing to people who over a period of a decade had come to expect because of these previous governor's policies that if you do X, then Y will happen. You will get your voting rights back. And there's a simple process that that would happen. Um, those days are over. And so there's confusion. Like I said, there, there's demoralization. And you also have a situation where 
Uh, as a result of the, the demoralization, I think this is another underrated effect of what Youngkin's done. People, in many cases, have just given up. I mean, I interviewed some folks uh, a couple months ago before Virginia's primary who said, I'm not even going to bother applying to get my rights back as long as Youngkin is in office because I know he's not going to uh, uh, put me through. And um, of course, I have no idea whether this is uh, in- intentional, but by Youngkin to sow this confusion and to uh, make people feel sort of kept down and um, not not whole, not total citizens. Um, but it's absolutely uh, been one of the effects, and it, it, it's profound and it's wide-reaching. Well, Youngkin, clearly that information has gotten back to Youngkin's office. If they wanted to clear up the confusion, they could and they choose not to. So whether it's deliberate Absolutely, or not, yeah. that's happening, right? You know, and look, I, I you know, I, I, at, at the top of the show, Alex, I was mentioning what was happening down in Fulton County today. And Trump actually said afterwards, you know, very angrily, what has taken place here is a travesty of justice. What you have just described <laughs> is a travesty of justice. And it impacts people who are already treated badly by the judicial system, you know, the over-policing, the over-incarceration rates, and it re- reflects in voting. And I, I think what comes across, and I've seen this, we saw this in stories for out, of, out of Florida after they passed Amendment 4, the idea that voting makes you, and you addressed it, part of part of the community again, and the exclusion factor, it, it's just, it doesn't help. It just doesn't help. It makes things worse, I feel like, and it, it just, it's enraging to me. And, and again, it's a travesty of justice. Yeah, and, and, and voting is not, uh, of course, the silver bullet to feeling whole. Sure. I mean, people need housing, people need jobs, people need health care. Right re-entry in general, as I'm sure, you know, you and, and your listeners know, I mean, it's just a, a, a tough road and the number of obstacles uh, are so numerous, but it's really uh, sort of remarkable. So almost to a person, um, when I go out in Virginia and talk to folks who are affected by this, I, I often hear a version of the exact same thing, which is it would that the being able to vote um, and just knowing that you have a say is so, so important um, to feeling uh, like you've moved past your incarceration and you've moved past your criminal record. And conversely, not being able to vote and being told by the state government, um, you are still something other. Uh, you are not like uh, other folks in this community, you don't have a say. Um, like I said, I, I don't know. I keep, keep coming back to the word demoralizing, but it is uh, it, it it just piles punishment on top of punishment, and people who've already served so many years uh, or however long their sentences would be and suffered whatever consequences, um, economic, social, whatever it might be, uh, health wise, that come from being incarcerated. Even after you've done that and you've as they say, paid your debt to society, um, you, you come out and you're still paying that debt. And the reason why Virginia's situation is so interesting, or particularly interesting, Kentucky's situation is so interesting, is because that's a debt that you may be paying until the day you die. I mean, I am right. interviewing people here who've been on this list for 20, 30, 40 years. There will be people uh, with felony convictions from you know 1975 in in kentucky who will watch this election go by and not get to take a part in it and what that does to somebody uh over a period of years uh it 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 can be really really heavy and it it can affect somebody in a big way really really just really important reporting and i just want to remind everyone there are elections i know if you live in kentucky if you live in virginia there are elections this year Governor's race in Kentucky is very important because, look, the choice between Bashir and Cameron on this issue, Bashir's no cha- not the greatest champion, but he's going to be much better than Cameron. And in Virginia, look, uh, Youngkin's still going to be the governor till 2025, although he wants to run for president. 
Early voting in Virginia starts four weeks from tomorrow. I, I do a show on the states, um, <laughs> Alex, called State of the States. And Daniel Nishinian, uh, you know, the founder of Bolt, is one of my favorite guests because we both obsess about these kind of elections. And this is why, again, I feel like Bolt is so important. So how can people find your work? How can people keep track of what you are writing about, Alex Burness? Uh, well, we, we appreciate your support, and I'm biased, but I, I think Bolt's really is covering uh, some of the most important and under the radar stuff going on uh, in the country today all over the place. So uh, you can find us at boltsmag.org, B-O-L-T-S-M-A-G.org. You can subscribe to our newsletter for free. If you like what you see, uh, we, of course, always welcome donations. We're a small independent nonprofit, so very heavily reliant on average people giving it a couple bucks a month if they can. And we appreciate, we appreciate anybody who does, uh, or anybody who just comes by the website and, and has a read, uh, we cover the whole country. So if you, uh, if you visit us, chances are, we'll, you'll find something, uh, in your backyard of interest. Absolutely. And just a, like a blockbuster uh, report this week from uh, law professor Quinn Yergain on state Supreme Courts. I got to I got to talk to him. I'm going to have to dive into that, too. And always, always Daniel's What's on the Ballot, which is just like one of the most revered publications at any time there's an election. Really, Bolts Mag and full disclosure. I'm a monthly subscriber, and it is money well spent. I am so glad we got to speak tonight, Alex. Thank you for um, the reporting and the work you and your colleagues do at Bolts, and thank you for joining us tonight on Tell Me Everything. For sure. Thank you for having me. Uh, We'll talk again soon, I hope. We're going to take a break here on Tell Me Everything. We'll be back in a few minutes. Welcome back. Now, I'm going to get on the phones in just a few minutes, but we have a guest, another guest, and this is an important guest. This week, the South Carolina Supreme Court, the newly constituted all-male South Carolina Supreme Court, reversed an earlier decision on abortion rights and has now upheld an abortion ban. And we can't let this week pass without not discussing this. And I am really, really glad to be joined right now by the chief executive officer of REN, Women's Rights and Empowerment Network from South Carolina, Ann Warner. Ann, welcome back to Tell Me Everything. Thanks for having me, Joe. It's good to be with you. Well, I'm glad you could join us. And first of all, how are you doing? I mean, this has been a rough week. How are you and your team doing? Well, it has been a rough week. Our team is devastated um, by this news. We are tired, um, but we are still fighting. We are determined to keep going um, and to not let this incredibly unjust decision by the South Carolina Supreme Court stand. So uh, we, we are ready to continue this fight for as long as it takes. Well, I just gave a quick synopsis of what happened. Fill us in on how you got to a point where a Supreme Court that upheld a decision earlier this year has now completely reversed itself. Fill fill in the details for our audience. Yeah, it's it's kind of unbelievable, really. But unfortunately, it, it is... Uh, True. What has happened is that just this week, um, the South Carolina Supreme Court um, reversed its own precedent just a few months ago in January of this year. The the same court with a slightly different composition um, had uh, struck down an identical bill, a six week abortion ban, and they struck it down on the grounds that it was unconstitutional, that it violated the right to privacy as enshrined in the South Carolina Constitution. Um, that was a three to two, three two decision, and um, that law um, was in, invalidated and could not be enforced. Um, so that was a huge victory, not only for South Carolina, but but for the country, um, for our region, um, because it was the first time that a, that a court had uh, ruled on um, a, an abortion decision uh, related to constitutionality. Um, 
of a state constitution. So it was a very big deal here in South Carolina and around the country. Um, but unfortunately, there were two things that quickly unfolded after that. Um, within the courts, Justice Kay Hearn, who was the only female member of the South Carolina uh, Supreme Court, um, retired um, due to mandatory age limits. Uh, she had to retire and she had written the lead opinion and she was joined in, in her decision by two other justices, but she did write the lead opinion and a very strong opinion outlining why this case was un unconstitutional. When Justice Hearn um, retired, she was replaced um, by the legislature who votes on on uh, judicial appointments um, uh, that a, a man would serve in her place, not surprisingly. And um, that justice took his seat in February. And um, we now have the only all-male su uh, Supreme Court in the country. And then at the same time, the legislature decided they wanted another crack at this, getting this abortion ban uh, done in the legislature. And um, they decided to reintroduce the same bill with a little bit of different window dressing on it and hope that they'd get different results with a different court. Um, and unfortunately, that's what happened. It was a long, tough, really bitter fight in the state house um, that went all the way into a special session. But ultimately, the six week ban did pass. And um, just yesterday, the Supreme uh, Court has upheld the law as constitutional. So it is now in effect in South Carolina. Jesus Christ. And, and let's just, I just want to read the section of your constitution that deals with privacy, which was, I believe, what was why the law was up, why the ban was um, blocked in the first place. The right of the people to be secure in their persons, houses, papers, and effects against unreasonable searches and seizures and unreasonable invasions of privacy shall not be violated. And, you know, I'm not a justice on the South Carolina Supreme Court. I'm just a, I'm someone who did go to law school. But, uh, you know, I kind of think an, an unreasonable invasion of privacy is certainly when a bunch of guys in your state say to women, we control your bodies. That That's just me, Anne. Um, it's not but... just you. <laughs> I okay, you. okay, phew. Okay. It, it's not it's not just you and um the justices you know in their previous opinion agreed with you um that uh invading someone's own body um and against their will is uh, is absolutely uh op opposed to our most basic rights to privacy and to bodily autonomy. So it's 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 mind twisting to read this opinion and read the ways that the justices have tried to to justify the decision and and to conclude that somehow you know uh forcing pregnancy and childbirth on people is not an invasion of the right to privacy. It, it's just, it's truly absurd. Um, and it is really doesn't stand up to reason. It doesn't stand up to the actual realities of people's lives. And unfortunately, that's what you get when you have um, a bench and a legislature that's dominated by men who don't have practical experience with pregnancy and childbirth and compl the complexities of the decisions surrounding um, those circumstances. You, you get you know, decisions made for purely political purposes. And unfortunately, what happens here is that people's lives, people's health, their, their, their well-being will suffer um, because of these, you know, political decisions um, that that really are ultimately incredibly harmful and 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 put people's lives at risk. 
and literally put people's lives at risk. And let's just say, you know, when you look at uh, maternal deaths and mortality rates, mm -hmm. South Carolina ranks eighth in the nation. Like, yes. And, and it's not like the South Carolina legislators are doing anything about that. Instead, they're going to put more women in risky situations. And I know that's something you are gravely concerned about. It, 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 it's, it's, it should be unconscionable, but it, these political decisions, the, the, the ramifications for real people are just, just brushed aside. It's maddening. Yeah, we have incredibly high maternal mortality rates and infant mortality rates that have gone up. So it, it is unconscionable that the fact that we have you know, women and infants dying in pregnancy and childbirth in the first year of their lives, that that should be the priority of our state house. And the fact that it's not, that the priority seems to be taking health care away from people, you know, shows that that we we are really um, in, in a in a in a, at a low point. Um, and unfortunately, not only is is it missing the point when you focus legislative action on on taking health care away from people but what we know from data from around the world is that when you have abortion bans you make all of those things much worse you make it way harder um, for doctors to do their jobs you make it incredibly difficult for for regular folks to access the health care that they need we have more than 30% of our counties in South Carolina that do not have an OBGYN. That crisis is going to get so much worse because doctors are not going to want to practice in a state where their expertise isn't respected and where they can't provide care that's in the best interests of their patients. So that's why lives are at risk here is because doctors are going to you know, who do stay here are going to have to make terrible choices um, about when they provide um, life-saving care and complicated uh, situations where um, a woman could be pregnant. Um, if you have to stop and consider where you're going to provide the best possible care for her um, because you need to call the lawyer, you know, that's really incredibly scary. So people in South Carolina are scared right now. They feel abandoned by um, their their uh, legislators and by the highest court in this state. And, and, you know, they should. They should feel that way because it's the reality. Um, and, and they should be angry and they should be demanding change. And, and that's what we intend to do. We intend at REN... Um, and with our partners and with the amazing people that we work with across the state to demand change. Um, we have some good legislators who've taken courageous positions. We know that there is there are reasonable people, um, but we have got to bring more people um, into this fight. And we've got to show elected officials that they're going to feel the, the pain at the polls if, if they don't. Uh, reverse this decision and start making decisions that are in the best interest of their constituents. Really important. You know, um, I, I, a couple weeks ago, I spoke with uh, State Representative Anna Escamani from Florida. Uh, their legislature passed a six-week abortion ban um, demanded by the governor, uh, Ron DeSantis. And it was interesting. I said, what was it like in the legislature when that was happening? because there was a lot of pressure on Republicans to do it. And she said a lot of them just thought they were going to lose their seats because of it. And now she's working on a constitutional amendment in her state. I, I'm interested, what is it that you and your colleagues are going to do? What are the, how are you going to apply the pressure? And for any of our listeners who are in South Carolina, and I know there are many, what, mm -hmm. what can they do to help? Well, we need um, anybody who's here in South Carolina to get involved, reach out to their legislators now um, and, and express your outrage um, and your expectation that when they come back to Columbia in January, that they're going to get to work at overturning 
this law and getting behind legislation that will actually improve the lives of the people of this state. So folks can go to our website at scwren.org and um, sign up to be part of our network. And and we have really easy ways that you can um, get in touch with your um, legislators through that through that um, that platform. Um, we are absolutely going to be making sure that people know how to register to vote, um, know how to exercise their rights um, and have their opinions be heard and respected in these upcoming elections. You know, we've seen we see it again and again and again, how much elections matter. And um, I think as the uh, people of the state start feeling the consequences of this horrendous decision to pass this ban, they're going to realize, you know, just how irresponsible their um, state house uh, legislators have been, and they're going to start demanding change. And um, we are going to be working to educate and mobilize people to put that pressure on in a way that we never have before, because the stakes are just so very high right now. The stakes couldn't, couldn't be any higher. And, you know, you hate to say it, but what we have seen around the country, these horrific stories from Florida, from Texas, it's, oh man, it just make, it makes me sick, but they're inevitable because they, the, the, we're going to see horrible stories in your state of women go, going through tra- tra- a lot of trauma because of these guys on the Supreme Court and the legislators who enabled it. And it, it, it's, it's going to be rough. And that's why the work you're doing is so important um, and vital because th- there needs to be accountability. And I, and I know from, you know, I, I talked to a lot of state legislators on my show, State of the States, and to a person, they have all said the issue they hear most on the doors is abortion. That was 2022. It's 2023 in Virginia. And the other thing they always say is call us because a lot of their a lot of legislators don't hear from constituents. So the what you're telling people to do is just vitally important. And you spent a lot of time in the state house, so you know how they can kind of skate past and think that people aren't paying attention. But that's it's so important that th- yeah. that um, that that happens, right? Absolutely. It is so important. It it truly matters. We've been able to move votes um, because of the people who've shown up, called, told their stories and 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 brought people along. So, you know, we've heard about the sister senators who got such national attention this year, bipartisan group of female legislators in our state Senate um, who stood strong. They stood up even um, against their party um, in the case of several of them. Um, but they did that because they knew that it was in the best interests of the people that they represent. And they they did that because they had that support. So even if you think, you know, you've said it a thousand times, guess what? You're going to have to say it many more times and for a long time to come because this is a long-term fight and we need folks to realize that yes we need you active now and we need you to dig in uh, for the long term and um we know that ultimately we will prevail um but we won't do it if every person who's worried about it doesn't start getting in the game now Absolutely right. So again, the website is scren, S-C-W-R-E-N dot org. And Wagner, thank you so much for taking the time tonight. Ann Warner, I'm sorry. Ann Warner, thank you so much for taking the time tonight. Um, CEO of REN, the Women's Rights and Empower Network in South Carolina. And thank you so much. Thank you for the work you do. Thank you for joining us this week of all weeks. Thank you for having me. I really enjoyed our conversation. Keep in touch with us um, over the next few weeks and months and keep us up to speed on what's happening in your state. We are at the top of the hour here on Tell Me Everything. We'll be back after the news. We'll get back on the phones then. This is Joe Sudbay. Talk to you soon. Hello, everyone. 
There is so much news this week, obviously, with what's been happening in Fulton County. Donald Trump turned himself in, surrendered today. It's a big news story. He's back on Twitter so he could post his mugshot, his menacing mugshot. But another story that's been unfolding, and we've talked about it, and we've mentioned it several times, is the special session that's been held in Tennessee in the state house. And it's been a disaster, of course, because the Republicans who have a supermajority there are being total dicks, no surprise. And that's why I'm really glad to have on our next guest. Now, this next guest is someone I've been able to work with. We have mutual client. That's how I met Afton Bain. I know she's a badass, a total badass from Tennessee. And a couple weeks ago, she won a primary to be the Democratic nominee in House District 51. So it's a very Democratic district. So pretty soon, our hope is that Afton's going to be in that state house as a state representative instead of just a troublemaker in the best possible way. Afton, welcome to the show. Wow. What an intro. I don't I don't think I would have done it better myself. So thank you, Joe. I really appreciate it. <laughs> well, I mean, you for, I, I was thinking about this. Um, you know, you've been at the state house a lot. You were at the state house um, when the T- Tennessee Three get kicked out. Um, you were, you have been there for years protesting. Um, what has this week been like um, from your perspective? Just give us kind of an overview. So I have been a, I would, I would say, a fixture in the Tennessee state legislature since 2017. Um, I've gone from a Medicaid expansion lobbyist to getting arrested in 2019, protesting a former speaker who is now being indicted by the FBI um, to this week, which was if, if I want to take everyone back to April and those, you know, national harrowing moments, I'm sure everyone was glued to their TV to see the um, what, what would happen to the Tennessee three. Um, And the special session that was called was a result of that advocacy and that moment in April to ensure that meaningful gun reform was passed. And instead, what has happened, they have called a special session in which the Tennessee House Republicans have refused to post the uh, committee schedule, who is in the committee. I talked to a reporter two days ago in um, the legislative uh, um, administrative building, Cordell Hall, that said, I can't even do my job because of how much chaos is happening at the moment. And I think a moment of reckoning was in one of the House subcommittees when you had the mothers of the Covenant School who their kids had passed away in a a mass school shooting sitting in the front row holding signs that said, I'm a Republican mother for gun safety. And they were aggressively thrown out of the subcommittee room because of their signs. And so what started as, you know, hope for the special session that maybe we would have some semblance of of meaningful progressive legislation that would actually in in you know safeguard the lives of our kids in their schools has turned into not only a debate over rules which was the first two days of the special session but now they are throwing out republican mothers of dead children out of these subcommittee rooms to maintain rule and order and the optics just look absolutely terrible i have to say I saw a headline and I saw it, of course, on the Tennessee Holler, which I I worship Justin Canoe and his coverage and the c- coverage of he and his colleagues. Um, but he posted a headline from News Channel 5, Troopers versus Moms. Tennessee House Republicans clamped down on dissent during special session. The dissent was some women holding eight and a half by 11 signs. And Afton, you mentioned you were arrested in 2019. Um, you knew what you're expecting. I, I have to wonder what, what's what's been what's been the mindset. The, the what are you hearing from these mothers who all they thought they were doing was going to a special session because their kids are died or people they know kids had died or their kids were scared to death that day when the shooting happened. 
and they're being treated that way. I mean, you expected it. I can't imagine any of these women expected it. And what's the backlash been like? I mean, it's been steadfast and and deeply warranted. I think I think those of us that have been at the legislature, it was it was funny because a, a reporter on Twitter had mentioned, and she said, "I remember when when you myself Afton um, were in a subcommittee room, and and at the time in 2019 we were protesting a rural state legislator who had sexually assaulted underage girls, and because we were holding signs that." said, you know, please remove this person from the education subcommittee. Please, you know, he should resign from the legislature. Um, they also at that time made they amended the rules so that we were not able to hold paper signs. So for me, this was a moment of, I think, a, a full circle moment in, in, in realization that literally nothing has changed. And so seeing these mothers, I think, you know, on on the on the other end of the spectrum, which it's myself and the other organizers that have been heavily involved in trying to build progressive power in the state of Tennessee, you know, we've, we, I think are, are used to this type of treatment, but to see these mothers wearing pearls and long skirts and not, you know, not to make a, a joke out of it, but I mean, they, it did look like, you know, a sorority rush video. I mean, the, the, the color palettes and they looked, I mean, beautiful and pearls and wearing, you know, holding these signs that said I'm a Republican. And I think it's just, for them, it's been a radicalizing moment in, in politics. And I'm very grateful because I think the trajectory, my trajectory in Tennessee politics is one of radicalization. And I think this is such a radicalizing moment for for mothers and especially Republican moms who have not been involved in politics and or have defaulted that politic to their husbands to say no more. And what I'm really excited about as an, as an electoral organizer in Tennessee is that there's never been, um, I would say, an, an entity that is primarying the, the most extreme Republicans in our state. Um, and I want to recall, I don't know if you've brought up the the article um, from Applebaum that was in, I believe, the Atlantic. Um, is Tennessee a democracy? And for a long time, we haven't been saying that, right? Because we don't have competitive elections. Um, you know, elections are won in primaries like mine a few weeks ago. And I think what I'm really excited about is to see more people engaged in the democratic process and particularly these moms who are inevitably radicalized from this moment to run for office against these people who are now um, deeply vilified in their community. It's 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 amazing. And it I mean, it's horrible that it takes something like this. But it's one of these things, you know, we've talked about this in the past. I tend to obsess about state legislatures because that's where the action is. That's where things happen. That's where the Dobbs decision came from. It was a Mississippi state law, you know, and um, and Tennessee is just horrifically gerrymandered. And it has given Republicans undue um, power. And, you know, Look what they've done with their congressional delegation. They've split up the cities so that, you know, they're Republican elected Republicans representing parts of like Nashville because they've cut it into a bunch of different pieces. And it's it's it, it you have to have these kind of experiences to believe how bad it is. You knew how bad it was. I know because I watch it. But you have to believe it because a lot of people don't pay attention to their state legislatures. And this feels so different after just watching it from the outside. It just has that feeling like this is a very different moment. And one thing that's interesting about that, the speaker and his cronies who have been, you know, they've had absolute power. They just don't know how to deal with it. Uh, what, are you, what are you hearing from them and what's the re Republican kind of reaction been? I mean, it's it's almost I, I reflect back to 20, the end of midterms. And Joe, I don't know if you remember, but um, the the executive director of the Susan B. Anthony group, which is the anti-choice national organization, when asked as to her her postmortem of midterms, said, I just don't think Republicans double down hard enough on abortion bans. <laughs> and and <laughs> I mean, it's that same sentiment here. And I think what's like from from. You know, from my perspective, I'm someone who's had an international and national career and Tennessee is a microcosm of the world. But the the Republicans in power, Nashville is the zenith of their political career and they are drunk on power. We have no ability 
to check the balances of power and hold them accountable. Um, and just like my democracy ran for a minute. So Tennessee, um, you know, we have uncompetitive elections. They have removed the ability for the governor to pass anything by executive authority. So say we had a Democratic governor like Governor Bashir in Kentucky, that he would not be able to take his uh, expand Medicaid, for example, they have removed any ability for us to pass popular ballot measures statewide. And then the cherry on the beautiful little uh, anti-democracy Sunday is that when our blue cities like Nashville, of which I will soon be an elected official, um, when we pass progressive policies, the state comes in and says, no, not today. Um, and so, for example, in 2018, we passed a um, 600,000 people voted for um, a, a ballot measure to for police accountability, community oversight to instill a, a community oversight board. And last session, the Republican legislature neutered it. So I, I just I think things I think people look at the it's hard to look at the, what happened with the Tennessee three in a vacuum because things have been so dire and helpless in the state of Tennessee. And I think what has happened in this special session is that, you know, the Tennessee three was all about people who care about democracy, people who are, you know, aware of the creeping authoritarianism in Tennessee. And this session, it's been about, oh, Republicans like, no, these people are really they, they are not good people and they don't have good policies and they will do anything to enshrine the will and the power of the NRA and these major corporate lobbies that have no interest in protecting their kids. It's really, it's fascinating. It's, it's wild. It's been wild to watch. And really, the, um, I, and look, look the, the whole nation was riveted, like you said, to the Tennessee Three and the vote to expel. And they did expel um, Representative Justin Pearson, Representative Justin Jones, and did not expel Representative Gloria Johnson, who came out and said, they said, why were you not? And she said, well, I'm pretty sure it's because of the color of my skin. And everybody else in America was like, yeah, that seems to be what it was. They were so blatant about it. It was just so gross. Um, and it's interesting. I know the governor, it, it really does seem like your governor, Bill Lee, um, is kind of scrambling, too, doesn't really know what to do because he's kind of one of them and he's happy to be one of them. But at the same time, you know, he's under pressure because he knows people who lost kids in covenant and he knows how resonant that is probably with people he is in his social circles. But, you know, this is this session has been a disaster for him. He's been largely silent until today. Some half assed statement from his press secretary. What's going on with the governor, Afton? So he I mean, he he is a I mean, his political strategy is dictated by Christian nationalism, but other than that, mm -hmm. like he owns an air and heating company, <laughs> um, no public policy experience. But I think he felt pressure from you know his wife was very close with the um, the headmaster of Covenant School who passed away in the school shooting, and I think he he felt the need to do something. Um, and that thing, that mechanism for what, what we thought would be accountability, I think is a, is a performative way for him to voice his tacit support of, of, you know, any type of gun reform. And I think what's important to note is that the Covenant school parents aren't asking, you know, for a federal ban on assault weapons. They have three very minor policy requests that close loopholes. I mean, these are, these are things that are just I mean, pulling the law to a place that is even even balanced and normal, not kind of the the leftist view of what gun reform could look like. Um, and Governor Lee was supposed to be an advocate in in their camp, and instead he was um, he was at the I guess an FFA convention uh, and spoke for eight minutes and didn't even mention the special session. And I will tell you the attitude in in Cordell Hall, which is our administrative building in in Tennessee. Which Joe, can I just tell you something really quick? Sure, of course. The state capitol is in my district. I have all of downtown Nashville. <laughs> <laughs> mm, revenge oh. is, a, is a dish best served cold or warm, depending who you ask. But um, so <laughs> the attitude in, in, in the legislature and on Capitol Hill is that they like the Senate de desperately doesn't want to be there. 
but now it's it's a it's the the political move right now is a stalemate between the Tennessee Senate and the Tennessee House um, because the Tennessee House wants to pass more radical bills and the Tennessee Senate is like we are hearing from our constituents that they don't want this we need to go home. So it's been I mean every single lobbyist and reporter I have talked to I've said could you put this into historical context for me like has this ever happened before what has this felt like they're like no this is. We are entering new territory. So it's funny that I'll be sworn in, you know, the third week of September and I'll be uh, ushered into what is uh, the most probably chaotic uh, year of Tennessee politics yet. Wow. Wow. I can't wait for you to get there, Afton Bain. Um, and, and I know one of the things you intend to work on. And in, 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 uh, so I'll just I'll ask you this and then I'll let you go, because I know you've already had a busy day. You just get done with a protest because, of course, you just get done with a protest. Um, one of the things you said, the reason you wanted to run is you want to help change the electoral scene in Pen- in, in, in Tennessee. You've described what a mess it is, the gerrymandering. You're going to be a, a state representative. You're going to have a, a role in this. Talk about some of the things you want to help do to elect more Democrats and elect more sane people to the Tennessee legislature. Yeah, that's a, that's a great question. So I think it's important to note for your audience that um, in Tennessee, obviously elections are won in primaries and that the Overton window has shifted so far to the right that you are i mean it's it's a culture war every day when you are in the tennessee legislature like there is no kind of middle ground in terms of talking about rural economic development for example so i ran my campaign on protecting trans kids standing up to a republican supermajority and electing Democrats up and down the ballot. Now, next year, we have the opportunity of a lifetime because Marsha Blackburn, our favorite, our other favorite blonde Tennessee politician uh, next to me, um, (laughs) is up for re-election. And uh, we hope that Representative Gloria Johnson, who endorsed me in in my primary, um, will run for Senate. And so I think that'll bring in a ton of DSCC resources. But more importantly is that um, we, Tennessee and a lot of states across the country have Republican supermajorities. And when you have a supermajority on either side, um, you know, it doesn't leave a lot of room for consensus. And I think that's, sorry, just to pause, one of the catalyzing factors of the Tennessee Three was that because the Democrats are in a super minority, their mics were cut off during committee sessions and on the floor. They, when they asked for people to testify, they were told no. Their access, even though they are democratically elected officials, was cut. So when you can't look at what happened with the Tennessee Three in a vacuum, it is this erosion of access that elected officials have in a, in a Republican supermajority. So what I fully intend to do in, in the organizing spirit and as the statewide organizer that I once was, um, is to support down ballot candidates in breaking the supermajority. So we have to win, I believe it's seven or eight seats. Um, that's not all going to happen in 2024. We know it's the long game, but I'm deeply committed to um, breaking the supermajority super um, so that we can actually pass policies because we've been in defense for so long. And I don't think Democrats know what it's like to win in a state like Tennessee. So I hope to change that. Well, I hope you can change that. And again, this is this is one of the reasons why I do State of the States on Sirius XM Progress, because what happens in these state legislatures is so important. So we're going to keep in touch, Afton Bain, when and next year on State of the States, we're going to be talking to Tennessee uh, Democrats who are running and helping them win because it is so important. And how can people find you, uh, Afton? Online. Yeah, so I've, I've got you? a website where you can learn. I've got actually I dedicated a, a web a subsite on my website for the special session activities, so you can actually see what we've been up to and our calls to action. Um, but www.aftonbain. You can also follow me on Twitter while it still exists. Um, and once again, Joe, I'm, I'm grateful for your work because the state legislatures are, you know, it's it's a circus every day, every day of my life. But I I know what I'm walking into, and um, I feel grateful that on the national level there are people digging into this so thanks so much for having me on afton bain a-f-t-y-n b-e-h-n check it out thank you afton it was great to talk to you tonight and uh keep in touch i'll talk to you again All right. soon.